Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about uh, social capital. This is part of our structure series, talking about the structure of good governments, structure of bad governments. You know, we've looked at constitutions. We've talked to uh, uh, parliamentary uh, government uh, officials in uh, South Africa, and we've we're looking at, at government from a lot of different point of views because the church is one form of government. So to understand what kind of government the church is, you need to understand what all the other governments are. And so we look at, you know, past, present, and possible future types of governments and where they lead. And in the, in the media, you see a lot of people talking about socialism and then some people talking about how socialism has failed everywhere and fails in Venezuela and then somebody throws out, that's not real socialism. And, uh, the reality is, is today we, we, uh, have a lot of countries that people say are socialist but are not socialist governments, such as Denmark. Denmark is not a socialist government. It's a, it's a market economy. And they have some socialist programs, but they're actually been rolling them back. And we've shown before in Sweden, they've been rolling back their socialist programs. Their, their social welfare is now somewhat private. They call it private, but it's heavily regulated. But also, if you're a foreign immigrant, you're probably getting more money than somebody who worked in Sweden all their life and retired. And that's just the way it is. Same thing. I get the same reports out of uh, Australia. You don't always hear these on the news, but I have people in all these different places and they feed back and they show you that, no, it's it's not what people think. Socialism is not a good thing. Uh, real socialism or not. But now, is capitalism a good thing? Because supposedly capitalism is the antithesis of socialism or vice versa. But the reality is that capitalism is not a political system. It's just an economic condition. Uh, you might even call it an economic system, but it's not even really that because there can be all kinds of systems of economy uh, or economics that use capitalism but vary quite a bit. All capitalism is, is it agrees with the private ownership of the means of production. The means of production is capital. Things of value. And of course, we talked this morning that you cannot really have true capitalism with debt notes as your means of value because, like the Federal Reserve says, Federal Reserve notes have no value. It's an assumed value. It's a perceived value. It's... Uh, it's a theoretical, it's a virtual reality uh, uh, value, but it's not, it's not a real value. Because, you know, a $1 bill weighs exactly the same as a $10 bill. They just rearrange the ink, or a $100 bill uh, is the same thing, except for they rearrange the ink and they put a couple of zeros on it in somebody else's face, and you say, oh, well, that's a $100. 
But it's actually a debt note. It's not capital. Capital is actually something of value. You accumulate nuts. You accumulate gold. You accumulate iron or, or natural gas. These are resources. You accumulate them and that's your capital. And then you can use that to purchase something that you may be able to, you know, like tools and equipment. And then you make something else of value. And so you're increasing value all the time. And this is one of the things that a lot of socialists don't get. They act like, you know, there's only so much money, only so much value. And if you don't have it distributed right, it's not fair. But that's not the way it works. The more value you have, the more value you can create. And and that's that is what capitalism is all about. It's about the creation of capital, not the hoarding of capital. We all die eventually. We all face death. At that point, your capital goes into somebody else's hands. Because <laughs> so, you died. And we have an inheritance and things like that make pass on to your kids. But what happened many years ago is that, is that people created a democracy. The United States is a democracy. It is supposed to guarantee a Republican form of government, but it is clearly, just read the Constitution, it's an indirect democracy. And so, but it's supposed to, you know, guarantee that Republican form of government. Republican form of government is quite a bit different. In a Republican form of government, the leaders that you elect are titular because you're free from things public. But what's happened is over the years is that people have began to redefine a republic as an indirect democracy. And they are not the same thing. But the United States government didn't control everything. It just controlled the United States government and a few items that the states gave it power to do. But now it seems to be meddling in everybody's business. Uh, but that's all the result of... Programs that it's created, it allowed for a Federal Reserve system. There were still private banks around, but eventually the Federal Reserve became literally a monopoly as the banks of bankers. Uh, we also see other things that the, the United States federal government allowed. It, it said, from our point of view, we're going to uh, treat corporations as if they're living creatures. Well, the problem with that is, Corporations don't get old and die. They may die, but they don't get old and die. So uh, they have a decided advantage over a living creature. And we've done all kinds of shows. You go look at preparing you. Go look up our uh, article on golems. Golems were these creatures supposedly created out of clay that went around and did the bidding of men. And the way you kill them is that you change this one letter. It has to do with the uh, truth in Hebrew. And... Uh, what they're talking about is a corporation. The golem is a story about a corporate entity. And created by clay, well, it was, the terms were written on clay tablets and then, and so it developed a life of its own. Well, the federal government, uh, with, uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, did a number of things. Uh, it reduced everybody to the status of person which makes everybody a member of the United States. We weren't, we didn't have that before. Everybody was citizens of the states. But they also extended, extended life to corporations. And now corporations, so you, you don't really have capitalism at that point. 
either to some degree. I mean, you still had capitalism around, but you had corporate capitalism. And then now today we have crony capitalism and we have socialist capitalism. <laughs> so you, you mixed all these things, but capitalism is not a political system. It's just what you produce is yours. Your labor is yours, etc. Well, all that's kind of gone on the side. And we write in the book Covenants of the Gods the history of how that got shelved or put on the side. But that's not really what we're talking about. But it's important to understand these principles of what capitalism is. It has to do with the value of yourself. And the value that the expenditure of your energy can accumulate. That's what capitalism is all about. Now, we're all entities. Now, one of the things, somebody was talking to me the other day. And, you know, I'm fond of saying, you don't love anybody more than the person you love the least. People have a difficulty understanding that. But, of course, the reason why is because they think love is a feeling. Or love is a fancy. That's one of the questions I think uh, comes up in uh, Sense and Sensibility. In the book, they say, is love a fancy or a feeling? Well, actually, it's neither. Real love, God's love, Christ's love, is a utility. It's not a fancy or a feeling. It's a utility. And that love is the love that has the real power. The other love has the power to manipulate and control and to influence but the love as a utility, that that's an unbiased love. God loves you. Uh, he loves you the same all the time. And uh, it has to do with energy that he is directing towards you. But he may hate your deeds. And your deeds may cut you off from God's love. It may It may disconnect you from God's love. Okay, so whatever all that means, we're we're going to keep that on the back burner. Those of you who can hold that idea in your thought. Uh, you're an entity because God loves you. God created all the universe. Whatever God is, this heuristic thing that we call God. Somehow there was a design in the creation of the universe. And we see design everywhere. And uh, they talk about intelligent design. Now, some people want to think, oh, it just happens to fall into patterns. But see, if we're all from the same source, then we're all the same. But we're not all the same. We're all different. We're all different because there are things like blue and green (laughs) and different colors and different shapes and different densities. And so we're not all the same. We're different. And in that difference, what does it say? Viva la difference. In that difference, we create complex patterns. Because helium and hydrogen and iron are not all the same atom. They're different. And because of that, you can create complex patterns. And human beings, individual human beings, are one of those complex patterns. And you're a complex pattern. I'm a complex pattern. We have what you would call an identity. Now, Most of the living cells that compose up what we see as a body here are not even a part of your body. They're microbes living in your body. But that those microbes in your body, and we've talked about this before, can actually influence your emotions, influence your desires, and everything else because altogether they're a living 
creature inside you or billions of living creatures inside you and they can influence you. You are one of 7 billion creatures living on the face of the earth. As 7 billion creatures, you can influence all the other. Well, now we have some people in the universe operate in the in the world operating according to a certain pattern and we have other people operating according to another pattern and those two patterns will come into conflict if if you're not what the romans used to call romeos and the greeks called romeos whole you may not be as compatible with somebody else who is less than the whole because they're missing certain characteristics in their being. And that's the story of Adam and Eve. They're fallen creatures. And we have this story in lots of ancient cultures. That somebody, you you were designed, your pattern was to be like so. But you end up being like this. Which is less than what you should be. So how do you get back to what you should be? How do you raise, we talked this morning about DNA and how you can influence DNA with sounds and with what you say and with emotions and attitude and epigenetics all can influence your DNA. Just as an example, and this will help continue what we said in the original program, I'm sure people will argue with that, but if you follow these series through, we start tying these ideas together from one end to the other. And a number of scientists did a process where they took uh, eggs, fertilized eggs of a fish, and they put them in an aquarium. And they took some, they put them over in this aquarium, and some in that aquarium. And that aquarium also had a Faraday box around it so that the natural frequencies that are traveling over the earth could not penetrate that Faraday box. It was grounded out so there was none, or very little, very weak, magnetic field passing through that aquarium and then they added a a different magnetic field to that aquarium inside the faraday box and uh, where the eggs were and they changed the frequency from what the schumann frequency is that's the normal earth frequency to something else i can't remember what it was it's been a long time since i looked at the study but they they changed the frequency drastically to something else. And all the fish, all the eggs in, in the fish turned out different. You, If you looked at the fish over here in the control group and you looked at the ones that were in the Faraday box, they didn't look like the same species at all. They looked very different. They swam faster. They swam stronger. They swam more uniform. They moved in a school. They... It was like a different fish. Then, I mean, the structure, everything changed. Somehow, they turned on the DNA by putting them in this bubble of frequency that was different than everybody else's. You know, all the other fish outside of the Faraday box. So, this is, this is one of those mysteries, but in it we can learn something. If you're in a crowd of people, you know, they talk about don't hang around with the wrong crowd. Well, if you're, if you hang around certain people, they will have an influence over the way you think. And the way you think will have influence over your DNA, over your appetites, over your emotions. It will just affect you. You, you can go out with certain people, hang out with certain people, and you say, I, I, every time I do 
you know, I get a bad feeling or I get a good feeling or something. Somehow those people affect you differently than, say, those people over there. So you have to be a little bit careful <laughs> who you associate with because they can have a much deeper effect on you than you would think. Also, the way in which you relate to other people can have a different effect on you. So anyway, this morning, we were talking about economies and and DNA and all of these, like we're jumping all over the place, but we're actually following a certain pattern of thinking and talking. We talked about the New Deal, showed that the New Deal was not really that good a deal, and the war on poverty actually created more poverty. And the reality is, is even the New Deal, it didn't get rid of any unemployment, yeah, I mean, it might be worth it uh, to, uh, to. Uh, I wonder if I still have that available. Um, I, I quoted from somebody who uh, was the Secretary of Treasury at the time of the New Deal. He actually was one of the major writers of the New Deal and implementers of the New Deal that was set up by FDR. And I, I brought this quote out because somebody actually said that the New Deal, it worked. We need to do that again. It didn't work. And Henry uh, Morgenthau, Jr., who said, we have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. This is the guy who devised the New Deal. He said it does not work and have just one interest, and if I am wrong, somebody else can have my job. Well, somebody else got it. But unfortunately, a lot of his ideas are being brought back. And it it's not going to work. And uh, we've seen it in administration after administration. It does not create jobs. This idea of funding government with more tax dollars, we, we pointed out that during FDR, taxation in America tripled. Didn't double, tripled, just in a few years. But anyway, he says, I, I want to see the country prosper. I want to see people get a job. I want to see uh, people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises. This is eight years after the New Deal. Say, after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started, and enormous debt to boot. And he goes on, he criticizes, and that's what we talked a lot about. There's a lot of people out criticizing the New Deal, and have been for years and years, economists, looking at what actually took place. <laughs> the New Deal was a bad deal. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their job. It created, prolonged the recession unbelievably through America in debt and started this spending spree that still hasn't stopped to this day. And now the whole world has returned to the uh, bondage of Egypt, all because of men like FDR and a few others, you know, like the Social Security Act. And we explain all how that works, but that's not really the subject of today's show. But it's important to understand that framework that surrounds what actually was taking place. So, anyway, uh, we talked a little bit about that, and then we we uh, talked about a number of other things, and then we eventually got down to uh, talking about Stephen Perlstein. And he said, fix the plumbing. You know, he asked, can American capitalism you know, survive? And 
if if what we have today is American capitalism, no, it cannot survive. <laughs> but it's not real capitalism. That's the thing. Is that They always talk about not real socialism. Well, the reason America is floundering around, although it's kind of successful right now, but we still have this unbelievable debt and nobody's doing anything about it and it just keeps growing and growing, is because we're not practicing real capitalism. But the other reason is that we are socially bankrupt. We don't have the social capital. So we talked a little bit about social capital. Social capital broadly refers to those factors of effectively functioning social groups. It includes such thing as interpersonal relationship, shared sense of identity, a shared understanding, a shared uh, norm, shared values, trust amongst uh, the participants of the society, and... Uh, uh, cooperation and reciprocity. So anyway, that's all part of social capital. Well, we'll how would we break down social capital into? Well, let's let's look at social norms. Social norms is the network of the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. So these norms allow you to function effectively. Well, used to be that, you know, I mean, there's always been out of wedlock births. There's always been out of wedlock pregnancies. We didn't abort them at the rate we're doing today. Uh, we, but young girls would uh, grow up mature and look forward to the day that they got married. They would get married. They would have families. And that worked pretty good. Today, we're doing something else. Uh, girls are having children out of wedlock. They're getting pregnant, certainly out of wedlock. They're having relationships out of wedlock that last sometimes only a few years, sometimes only a few months. And so they have a lot of inconvenient pregnancies, so they abort them. And, uh, which is, has become a pervasive symptom of our modern society. So when Stephen talks about fixing the plumbing, he's actually including some of this idea of social norms. Another definition of social norms, or mores as they sometimes call them, are the unwritten rules of behavior and are considered acceptable in a group or society. Norms can change according to the environment. Uh, situations and cultures in which they are found. The people's behavior will also change accordingly. Well, behavior changes society and society changes behavior. But the norms that you, what you accept as normal, that what you accept as the mores of society makes a huge difference as to the direction that that society is going to be going. And if you want to fix the plumbing, which we talked about this morning, the plumbing is us. The internal workings of society. If we look at society as a body, as a vast group, then the plumbing is those internal workings of society. And you could, you could equate it to the electronics, you know, the electrical systems of society. And basically, if you're talking plumbing and electrical, uh, you you could be talking about a, somebody who is a living creature 
And of course, the Bible talks about dry bones. You start with the dry bones. The dry bones come together, fit together, that structure. And then sinew and meat comes onto the bones. A flesh and blood come onto the bones. And then God breathes the spirit into them. And can they live? And of course, that's that's giving you an outline of the procedures to become a successful society. And you, you're going to need social capital and you're going to need social norms. But what norms? What mores? What is moral? What is not? Well, of course, the Bible gives us a lot of ideas on what is moral. And, you know, fornication is not good. That's those relationships outside of marriage. Why is that so bad? I mean, why can't we just play around a little bit and then when we get ready, we can get married? I, I personally don't think that works for men, although men do it more often than women. But I don't think, I guarantee it doesn't work for women. It cheapens the relationship of marriage. If, you know, I've, I've known some people, somebody else I know, they, they gotten divorced, I think, once or twice before I knew them. And now they had, and I know the husband had been divorced more than once and uh, had children by another woman. And so they're both, you know, two, three times losers. And as far as staying together married. And now they've broke up again. And she's immediately in relationship with somebody else. And that lasted just a few months. And now she's in relationship with somebody else. And so it's just she's going from one person to another. Now this is not a new problem. Because we know the Samaritan woman by the well. She had been with five men. And that's not good. Christ frowned upon that. I'm not trying to condemn people who do that, but I'm telling you that if you do that, it will condemn you. It it will destroy your relationships. So that's one of the norms, is that you, you're not only monogamous, but you're loyal. And you go back to that list of virtues that I talked about this morning. One of them has to do with this chastity and consistency where you 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 keep your word. You know, love, honor, and cherish this woman, this man. And you you work together as a unit and you focus on that. And even though you run on hard times, you don't just abandon one another. You stick it out. Well, another social norm that has to do with this relationship is going to church. But what do you do in church? What's, what is your plan in church? How, how does that work out uh, as an operation within the church. I mean, you say, well, I go to church because I believe in Jesus Christ or whatever. Or I know some people who don't go to church because they say they believe in Jesus Christ. But uh, the reality is, is that what was the early church doing that the modern church is not doing? Well, it was taking care of all the social welfare of the people through faith, hope, and charity. Now, other people had social welfare, but they were not doing it through faith, hope, and charity. They were doing it through force, fear, and violence. Through taxes. Forcing people to contribute. Borrowing money against the future. And then, now, that puts you here under the thumb of somebody else. So, anyway, if we, if we take a look at, uh, you know, some of these other aspects of this society how do we fix that plumbing so it has these mores well you can have a list 
you know, like the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't murder, don't bear false witness, all this stuff. But how do you get those laws written upon your heart and upon your mind? Well, you have to try to live that charitable life, you know, that operates with chastity and temperance and charity and diligence and patience and gratitude and humility, as opposed to lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. So these are antithesis of each other. And so in order to operate in a righteous way, you need to manifest those list of virtues. Because a free government, you know, where you don't have any taxes, you don't have anybody making new laws for you on a regular basis, more hoops for you to jump through. If you don't have that, you have to have, you know, what do you have in its stead? Well, that's what the kingdom of God is, is what you have in its stead. It fills that gap. Uh, So, anyway, we're going to take a break here. And we'll be back to Keys to the Kingdom in a moment. Uh, and we'll see where we can go with this whole process of seeking the Kingdom of God and His righteousness and increasing our social capital. Because uh, it's very important what does the society run on except for this Social capital. I mean, how, how, how does that operate? But anyway, so we'll be right back. Welcome back. So there's a section of the Bible in uh, Matthew 13. Uh, there's a number of things in Matthew 13 that kind of jump out at you, but, uh, it talks about, uh, the Son of Man shall in for, uh, send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend them which do iniquity. Offend them which do iniquity. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And uh, then he goes on to say, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear and let him hear. So he's, he's, he's telling you a little bit of a mystery there. And he said that if, if you have ears to hear, we'll let you hear. So evidently a lot of people aren't going to get what that means. But in the next verse, we see again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Well, you know, the church is buying a field, but uh, we haven't seen the treasure yet. But we're operating in faith that if we buy this field, uh, that there will be a treasure here somewhere. Well, I know personally that the treasure has to be spiritual. It has to be an awakening within your heart. And that's what I'm talking about. Awakening DNA, changing DNA. And then we have a whole article on spiritual DNA. How does that change? How does that operate? Because you can, you, you really, you want to be renewed, transformed. That's what, uh, we were talking about with, uh, uh, our friends in South Africa. How, how are you transformed? 
How, how do you operate in the kingdom when you're not transformed yet? Well, it's, it's seeking the kingdom, which is your destination now, is, is not just the kingdom itself, but in the journey of seeking the kingdom. That's what you're looking for. That you are altered by that process. You don't change yourself. You are changed by that process. And you have to be really dedicated to that process. You put your hand to the plow. You don't take it off. You keep going. Keep going. Keep going. So he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. So he's giving, trying to give you a picture in these metaphors. And so now, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Can you, can you put this together? And of course, this peripheral conversation that I'm having, the circular conversation that I'm having here with you, hopefully can awaken some of that stuff. But without the Holy Spirit, you may not get what I'm talking about. So, like I said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessel, and but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. And, of course, the end of the world is the end of an age. It's not the end of the planet. And the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from amongst the just. So that's going to be an interesting event. Now, the real question is, are you the just or are you the wicked? And, of course, we're all wicked. We're all sinners. But what we have to do is change the way we think and change the way we act with everybody else. And we have to invest. We have to sell everything to buy this goodly pearl. And so what is that goodly pearl? And that's what we're talking about. This kingdom of God, this kingdom of righteousness is what we have to be willing to let every thing go to in order to obtain that. And one, you don't get that all at once. So that one of the things in the kingdom is there's a lot of social capital. And there is social norms or mores. And so how, how do we get that? Because we're not, we're not the plumbers. God is the master plumber. We have to allow ourselves to be changed. And this is how, how you, you do that is that you seek that kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that means you have to gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You, you don't go around trying to handpick the only special people I want to be with in the, in my congregation. Whoever comes in your geographical area, that's who God gives you. And that's who you have to learn to work with. So, uh, what I wanted to talk to, we're seemingly changing pace, but we'll, we'll try, tie this all together eventually here. And we talked about virtue in the last program. But, and so eventually when you're listening to these, I started putting these up on the website, this whole structured uh, routine. You can't hear last week's for another day or so, but uh, we'll release it on the network. And then we'll, when we have them all compiled, we'll, we'll release that. And you should be sharing it around with other people because the key thing of, one of the key things of the kingdom is you have to care about others as much as yourself. 
And that's how we have to draw people into the network and draw them into these local congregations. Now, if we try to form a congregation, people are so spread out, they don't feel always that camaraderie. But that's that will come if we continue to strive. We will find the other people and they will begin to operate together. But I was going to talk about the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And uh, and this First Amendment Establishment Clause prohibits the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. This clause not only forbids the government from establishing an officer, an, an, an official religion, but also prohibits government actions that unduly favor one religion over another. Well, first thing that comes to mind is what's a religion? You know, what, 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 what you know, because you look at all these kids that are young people that are in these different groups and they're all supposed to be religion, but the only time it talks about religion in a good sense in the Bible, it talks about taking care of the needy of society. And so, religion is really about taking care of the needy of society. So, has the government started anything that might be construed religion? Well, actually it has. There's a thing called public religion. It was the imperial cult of Rome. And you signed up, and once you signed up, you had to pay in, and they would provide benefits for you if you fell on hard times. You know, free bread and wine and cheese and different things to keep you from starving completely to death. And that was called the Imperial Cult of Rome. So anyway, uh, back to the Establishment Clause. The First Amendment provides that the Congress shall make low, no law respecting an establishment of religion. And then they talk about the Lemon Test is this three-part test enunciated in uh, a particular law course, uh, case, Lemon versus, uh, I think it was uh, Kurtz, Kurtzman. And uh, it, it's often used to assess whether or not a law violates the Establishment Clause. And so there are three parts to what they call the Lemon Test now because of that case. Does the law have a secular purpose? If not, it violates the Establishment Clause. Well, again, if religion is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man, that sounds like, you know, that, you know, that sounds like a welfare, taking care of one another. And for the first hundred years or more, the government wasn't in the welfare business. It was the church and private charities that took care of all the welfare and, and the families themselves. But now the government's doing that. Well, that was, if it was used to be the duty of the church and now the government's doing it, is the government got into the arena of the church? Well, of course it has. And that's why we have, you know, we quote people who point out that uh, socialism is the uh, government you get when you have no religion. And uh, because socialism is not only an economic and political system, it's a religious system. 
Because it's how you take care of the needy of your society. And you don't do it through faith, hope, and charity. When you do it through social security, you do it through force, fear, and violence. Because you're going to compel people to participate. So, the, again, the three-part to the lemon test is, does the law have a secular purpose? Well, a secular purpose is to take care of the needy. But that used to be the job of the church. It was not originally a part of the government. The government wasn't taking care of the needy. It was like defense and things like that. But now it's gotten into the charity business, except for the fact that it's not charity because they don't wait for free will offerings. They force the offerings. If your offering is forced, you're not going to build any social capital. You know, social capital would come because you were helping out the needy of your society or your neighbor, other people in your congregation, and this would increase social capital. But if you don't have that in operation on a day-to-day basis, a daily ministration operating by faith, hope, and charity, then, then what happens to that social capital it does not increase because you're not helping anybody and therefore you're not blessing anybody so anyway the number two is the primary effect either to advance religion or to inhibit religion is if so it violates the establishment clause so if anything is done so that a church cannot feed the widows and take care of the orphans. That would be contrary to the establishment clause. Because you're competing against the church. And see, all this is done. There is a thing called public religion. And it was around at the time of Rome. And the United States has followed in that footsteps. And so is all the other countries. They, they followed in the footsteps of those socialist programs. And therefore they are infringing upon the job of the church. I can't say they're violating the job of the church unless they put undue restrictions on the church to, so that it cannot help other people. So the third thing is, does the law foster an excessive government entanglement with religion? If so, it violates the Establishment Clause. So, again, it goes back to that definition of religion. What is religion? It's the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. That's what it is. And the Roman imperial cult was providing for their fellow man through uh, forced offerings and debt and borrowing money. If you look at Everson versus Board of Education, which is a 1947 case, a large portion of the early settlers of this country came here from Europe to escape the bondage of laws which compelled them to support and attend government-favored churches. Well, if taking care of the needy of society, the widows and orphans and needy of your society who fall on hard times, is actually doing what the church used to do, then what we see this large 
portion of the early settlers of the country came here from Europe to escape the bondage of laws which compelled them to support and attend government-favored churches. Well, what they've done is they've created Social Security and they call it the Social Security Act. It's actually, we have another public church act. That's what it is. Because we'll take care of the needy and all you have to do is give, you know, regularly. And if you don't give regularly, we're going to put you in jail. <laughs> because you're, you're, you know, that's what Christians were being arrested for is because they would not join the public religions of these different nations. They said, we, we've got our own system. We're, we're not a part of your system. We're not a part of your world. And that's the way they operated. And it was quite a bit different than what most people think of today. And we have articles up, Christian conflict, etc. Christians were well-liked because they were helping everybody. They didn't cause trouble. And there were people who were very jealous of them and envious of them and wanted to see them destroyed. But a lot of people liked them. So when they would get into trouble like this because they weren't, you know, they outlawed private religion, and that's what Christianity was, was private religion. So everybody was going to be required to join the public religion of Rome, this imperial Roman cult. Well, they didn't want to do that, but they were going to compel to do that. So you had, you had the uh, government come and arrest Christians who were not signing up at the local temples, which were government buildings. And because they didn't sign up, for the benefits, they didn't have to pay in. Well, if you didn't sign up, you were in violation of the law. So, which, I mean, it goes back to even the Contraventical Act of 1619. But anyway, what they would do is they would have an official from the temple come to the house of the Christian. Usually this was a bishop or somebody. And they would set up a, t- a table... And they would call them out and they would put money on the table and they said, all you have to do is slide this money across and you can go back in. You can be free. But if you don't do that, then we may hold you responsible and arrest you and throw you in jail because you're not contributing to everybody else in society. You're not a part of us. Well, they didn't have to be a part. And uh, by, you know, and, and we have the cases, we have some of the cases in North Africa where they were arrested and tried and what they were accusing them of. And and you can look that up on uh, on the website. you probably find the article under benefactors. Uh, so you go to Preparing You and look that up. And it will explain to you why Christians were being persecuted. It wasn't because... I mean, there, every, there were all kinds of religions in Rome. And they all had these different ideas and names and all this stuff. But that's not why they were, they didn't care if you, you called your, your God Jesus or Yahweh. They didn't care about that. But they, at that point, they wanted to make you sign up. And you're going to see this in society that they will, they will hate you because you're not a part of their social welfare system that operates by force. 
But if you start gathering together and operate according to love, then you're not going to have as much trouble. Um, because God will intervene. But if you just don't want to be a part of their system, then they're going to hold it against you and attack you and call you names and throw you in jail and all this stuff. So you need to understand how this system works. So anyway, uh, I don't know if I'll get to everything that I wanted to talk to you about, but again, you can look up Imperial Cult of Rome at Preparing You. We have a nice long article there on that. But this Establishment Clause and this Lemon Test, uh, there is a excessive government entanglement with religion, with the establishment of Medicare, Medicaid, um, Social Security, all these things are operating over here in this realm of religion. And yet they're calling them government programs. Because they want to, I guess. <laughs> it probably is as uh, impertinent for a law professor to try to teach the Supreme Court its business as it once was when a youngster uh, would try to teach his grandmother how to suck eggs. And I, I read that. I'm actually quoting here from uh, a, an article by Philip B. Kirkland of the University of Chicago. And he's talking about this establishment clause. But he says, and so I, I tell you what I can tell the, uh, what I cannot tell the justices. I think that the most of the problems in the uh, so-called Establishment Clause cases derive from the fact that they are not addressing the right question. And this is a big problem when addressing the courts, is they're not asking the right question. And the reason they're not asking the right question is they don't know how the system really works. They don't know how the government got all this power, how they got snared, and how they became merchandise. Uh, but once you understand, then you may know what the right question is. But more important, you need to do something. You need to come together. But anyway, this Establishment Clause cases derive from the fact that they are not addressing the right question. This is what he writes. This is what Philip writes. And the right answer is dependent upon the right question. And this, over and over again in the Supreme Court, they ask the wrong question, so they get the wrong answer. And then they go and say, oh, well, no, we can't do that because they said no. Well, you, you weren't sharing, you weren't sharing the right facts and questions. So anyway, that question is answered in the negative by the precept of the Constitution. The issue usually raised by the Establishment Clause cases is whether the government action or inaction is in fact aid to religion. And so that's what he thinks it is religion and the Constitution in, in his article. He's saying that, but really what the right question is, he, he's right in a saying that they're asking the wrong question, but he doesn't come up with the right question. The real right question is, why is the government engaged in what used to be exclusively the territory of religion. 
the government has gotten into the charity business, but it has gotten into it with a gun. It comes to your door and says, this is time to contribute. And it takes from you what it deems is fair, not what you want to give. You don't, you don't tie to them according to their service. They just take it. Now is, I'm not saying that's illegal. There's a reason why that is legal and that it's okay to do, but that's the area of religion. And you should not, uh, the government should not, it's competing against the true religion. The problem is when you point out to all the churches that you're supposed to be taking care of all the social welfare of the people through faith, hope, and charity, they don't want to do it. They say, oh, we can't afford that. We won't be able to have this big building. I won't be able to drive this fancy car and everything. Well, you would be able to do it if the people had the money to donate. But they don't have the money to donate because it's already been taken away from the government who has established a public religion that provides for the widows and orphans and needy of society through not-so-free will offerings. And so, if you want, you, it will take a miracle to save you. If you want to get back to a free system, you have to gather together and start contributing to one another in a in these relational groups that will take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And that you won't do the whole thing at once, but you have to start doing it and and put your hand to the plow and keep going. And keep working in that. Try to find other people who realize this. And this is why I wrote all the books and write all the articles and everything. So that people will see, oh my goodness, no wonder that's not working. Why doesn't socialism work? It never works. (laughs) Real or unreal socialism, it doesn't work. Why is capitalism seemingly failing? Because it isn't capitalism anymore. It's socialism. It's crony capitalism. It's corporate capitalism. But it's not just plain capitalism. And why is all this taking place? Is because you lack social capital. You're not laying down your lives daily for one another. And if you would do that, just start doing it a little bit. Start heading back to the ways of God. Then God would bless you. In unseen ways that you don't know. If I were to hold up all the blessings that God have in store for you, you'd all get apathy and you, you wouldn't get the blessings and... And you would make life even more miserable. So you need to turn around and think a different way. In Matthew nineteen seventeen, it says, And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. And but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. One of those commandments is to not covet your neighbor's goods uh, through government or any other way. So, all the network is there to help you start turning around and going the other way. Start taking care of one another. And it is the best survival tool that you can imagine to have be connected with thousands of people all over the country that care about you and your family as much as they care about themselves. They're not going to church for a good feeling They're going to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. Join us at preparingyou.com. God bless.
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.